Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are introducing one of our favorite episodes from the past, Encore! (laughs) And we decided 30 seconds ago that this week we would be re-releasing Cultured Meat. Yeah, it's all about meat that goes to operas. No. Uh. <laughs> but we've been recording for a little while. I'm getting weird. Um, no, this was an episode that looked at lab-grown meat, also known as cultured meat. Um, and, you know, whether it's a solution to the planetary crisis, whether it's a solution to death, question mark <laughs> oh yeah i forgot that that was like a whole thing where it's because it's true like if you can grow like if you can grow a cow you could in theory grow like anything that you would need to replace okay actually this is not on topic but i was reading <laughs> recently about or i was listening to another podcast maybe about how everyone in the future might have like their own personal pigs that have like identical I don't know, organs or something. It was on Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything. So if anyone wants to like listen to how rich people are going to have pet pigs that will carry your replacement organs around for you. That's fucked up, man. I don't know. I wouldn't mind having like a companion pig. Okay, but I wouldn't want to steal organs from my companion pig. (laughs) That's weird. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I mean, why can't we just, we we could, we're getting pretty close to being able to just 3D print organs anyways. So maybe just like companion pigs could be a thing without the weird ethical side thing. I'll tell you what, Kyla, you find one of those wild feral hogs, new pet for life. (laughs) No problems with that, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay, well, without further ado, here is something different. (laughs) This episode, we are joined by climate activist Robert Miller to talk about cell-cultured meat. How you doing, Robbie? Doing pretty good. Um, This is an exciting topic for me because I started out many, many years ago being a huge fan of this idea, uh, and uh, now I'm deeply skeptical of it, so I get to bring people on that journey as well. (laughs) Robbie as a recovering scientist on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) What I think I want to do for this conversation is to sort of start, I've done some research so that I can talk about what cell-cultured meat is and sort of where the industry's at, just to give people a foundation. Um, And I'm hoping you guys can supplement me on that. And then I thought after that, we'd get into sort of a broader discussion about what are the rationales for um, ethical or for cell-cultured meat? And uh, what are some of the ethical debates that come up when you're talking about culturing meat? Okay, cool. I did not do a challenge for this episode because I you can't really buy lab-grown meat yet, as far as I know. I, I think I saw that you can buy it in, at a, a place in Singapore. And I was like, I don't feel like going all the way to Singapore for this challenge. Come on, Kyla. <laughs> <laughs> I phoned it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, if we lived in Silicon Valley, uh, we could probably have also, I don't know whether we could have set up a tasting, but there are some companies that are doing those as well now. But yeah, you're, you're right. The only place you can buy them is you can buy chicken nuggets at a few places in Singapore, but it's not widely available even there. And it, like Singapore just approved the technology 
in December 2020. So this is very cutting edge stuff. Do you know how much a chicken nugget is? I think uh, they said $50. Considering what the last time I read up on this, it was like a $1,000 for a mouthful of chicken or, or even more. I, that's actually not so bad. No, not bad at all. Let's start by sort of talking about what celled cultured meat is. Um, I have a, a really good description from this book called Billion Dollar Burger by Chase Purdy, which is all about cell cultured meat and the companies that produce it. And he says, by introducing a single cell to the right set of circumstances, it will naturally divide and duplicate many, many times. Once these cells multiply enough times, they organize themselves into a visible mass called tissue. And most of the meat that we eat is primarily muscle tissue, which is about 75% water, 20% protein, 5% fat with a trace amount of carbohydrates. So when we're talking about uh, cell cultured meat, we're really talking about mostly muscle tissues that are being produced in laboratory conditions. There are a bunch of different animals that have been cell cultured. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that when we go into the history of cultured meat. But in all cases, it's, it's basically in a sterile condition, you're having these cells that are taken, mostly taken from an animal, and they're being sort of replicated in a laboratory environment. Um, and it's primarily muscle tissue, although there are some companies that are learning to produce fat, which is really important if you want to produce like a cell cultured steak or something. Science is bonkers. <laughs> yeah, this problem is actually really cool because it results in sort of, there are two kind of ways to make cultured meat from a cell culture perspective, which is that if you want to create something like a steak, you, it turns out that flesh is actually very complicated uh, as a tissue, that there are multiple layers of epithelial cells, muscle cells, and adipose tissues, so skin, muscles, and fat that goes into making the different cuts and making sort of realistic meats. But it's very difficult to just sort of like grow those together. So you can either go for the far more complicated and sort of like truer fake meat, or you can try and do what I think most of the startups are doing now, which is making more of like cell cultured pink slime and then <laughs> turning it into something like chicken nuggets or ground beef because that's very easy to just grow like one type of tissue in very simple conditions and then mix it together into something that resembles meat. But you're probably not going to be seeing cell cultured steaks for quite some time um, because you can't just like put a steak cell in a Petri dish and grow a steak. It requires like a very complicated orchestration of different cell types to make something like that. And that's important for mouthfeel and taste as well, because um, as people who eat meat probably know, uh, different cuts of meat have very different textures and flavors, and that's because of the differences in those sort of like relative composition of tissues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why like, so there, there are different companies out there that are specializing in different things. And it's totally true that right now, the stuff that's ready to go to market is mostly like you know, duck pate, uh, chicken, processed chicken nuggets, hamburgers. Pink slime. Yeah, pink slime. <laughs> Just like Robbie said, yeah. But there are a couple of companies that are working to get those more complicated meats. So there's an Israeli company called Aleph Farms that is really gunning to be the first uh, to the market with a steak. <laughs> they're not there yet, but they're hoping. 
And uh, Memphis Meats, another American company, is they have managed to produce a like a chicken tender that has um, the stringiness that you would associate with eating like a chicken. So like the texture has been a big problem <laughs> because if you're just growing like that muscle cell, you end up with the pink slime kind of texture. It's a little different than the meat that people might identify. But in the future, cultured meat might have all kinds of textures that are really good at mimicking meat that we get from killing an animal. Yeah. And it's actually quite interesting because uh, I can add in a little bit of the sort of the science behind this. There are two problems with growing cultured meat uh, and their solutions are usually mutually exclusive. So if you want to create something that has good texture, that requires you to have the sort of cells behaving very normally and growing together in sheets like they would in your act, like in an actual body, and then layering them on top of each other. But the problem with this is that cells eventually die, and so especially if you're trying to create slaughter-free meat that doesn't involve animals in its production at all, you eventually run into the problem that your stem cells that you're using to sort of grow these sheets of tissue eventually die. And so you need to add in new stem cells, which requires having like a constant supply of animal tissue that you can sort of add back into the industrial process. You can get around this by immortalizing those cell lines, which is a really interesting process in cell biology, where you basically take cells and you fuse them with cancer cells so that their growth regulation ceases to be normal. Hmm. That sounds like a PR nightmare. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, I'll actually get into that. I was looking into Future Meats, one of the companies from Israel, and there's a really funny thing about that. But so you can immortalize them, turn them into cancer cells, and so this allows them to grow infinitely. But the problem is, is that the reason why their growth is inhibited in a normal growth, like normally growing in a body, is because you don't want cells to live forever. You actually do want them to die when they are supposed to die. And all of those regulatory systems that say, okay, you're going to die when you're supposed to die, are also the ones that say, this is how you're going to grow and interact with the cells around you, because those processes are all very linked. So when you immortalize cells, you turn them into cancer cells, they just they stop behaving normally. They don't grow in sheets. They don't create tissues. They create blobs. And so that's really easy for creating pink slime if that's what you want to do. Um, but it basically means that it's impossible to grow them in like a way that will create real texture. And solving either of these problems so that a fake meat company could have its, its cake and eat it too um, would not just be like a, a big victory for cell cultured meats, that would be like the holy grail of cell biology, because it would allow you to basically create immortal, like that's the immortality potion right there. I So I didn't expect to come into lab grown meats and be like, oh, well, this industry might lead to immortality. Like, I, <laughs> it's like an offshoot. <laughs> for Elon Musk, not for us. <laughs> But that's also just how science fiction, some of the ideas around cell cultured meat that never involves like animal slaughter actually are, is that if you really want a genuine lab grown meat that doesn't involve slaughter, that can have like infinitely proliferating cell lines growing nicely in a textured way, you basically need to solve the problem of immortality. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. 
So I think maybe we should step back just a little bit and to talk about like the basic recipe for how you get cultured meat. So cultured meat requires three different things, basically, and we've already talked about a couple of them. So the first thing is that you need cells. You need to get cells from somewhere. Second, you need a a nutrient-dense liquid medium, which basically is what you feed the cells. And then the third thing you need if you're going to culture meat is a sterile bioreactor that basically provides the right conditions for growing the cells. So in terms of how you get the cells, uh, cells are collected by performing, either by performing a biopsy on a live animal or by harvesting tissue from the ovaries of a newly slaughtered animal. And so the healthiest cells that um, you can get if you're trying to culture meat come from a biopsy, so something taken from tissue taken from a live animal, and especially when it's from a very young animal. The reason that scientists want to use stem cells for culturing is that they can divide and multiply many times, and they can also transform into different kinds of cells. So the cells in our body, um, a lot of them are specialized to perform specific functions, but stem cells can do different things. So if scientists either need to use those or they can manipulate other cells um, through a process of de-differentiating them, which allows them to sort of be reprogrammed to do different things. I hope I explained that in a way that was not scientifically wrong, Robbie. <laughs> nope, that, yeah, uh, that is very much correct. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, that is one of the major problems with sort of lab-grown meat is that at some point we do need to be harvesting cells from live animals And we're not even very good about this with human beings who have like generally recognized legal rights within our systems. One of the examples that is really important for cell culture and sort of the history of science is Henrietta Lacks, who was a black woman in the 1950s whose cervical cancer cells became basically the basis for all cell culture in modern biology. Like there are 11,000 patents that use her cervical cancer cells. And she was not recognized for her contribution to science until the 2000s. Um, So that was like 50 years during which her family was not informed that her cells had been used in this way. They had received no compensation whatsoever. Um, Her permission was never asked for what happened to these cells, and she was buried in an unmarked grave. So the, the extent to which we are not very good at even following dignity and like a dignified way of collecting cells from human beings cast some doubt on the sort of like vegan credentials of of fake meat. Like I grew HeLa cells in my undergrad. That was one of the, that was our sort of like first lesson in doing cell culture was culturing the cervical cancer cancer cells of Henrietta Lacks. Wow. (laughs) From human cell biology history to add into the fake meat stuff. No, and it's, um, that was one of the things that struck me as I was researching for this episode, how, um, I mean, it seems kind of obvious um, now that I'm saying it out loud, but I hadn't thought before of how cultured meat uh, is so connected to medical history as well, because cell culturing is, I mean, fundamentally the same, whether it's a human or an animal. So so let's talk maybe a little bit about the growth medium, which is the next ingredient that you need if you're culturing meat. The growth medium, it basically needs to provide what cells need to grow and Cell culturing used to require something called fetal bovine serum, which is basically blood that's drawn from the fetus of a cow. And (laughs) that shit is really expensive. It is about $1,000 to get four cups of the material. So 
in addition to like the ethical problems of like extracting blood from a a bovine fetus, uh, <laughs> there is like also the element that if you're going to be selling a meat product that anyone who doesn't have Scrooge McDuck money can afford, you have to use some kind of medium that's going to be much cheaper than a thousand dollars for four cups. <laughs> yeah, yep, <laughs> pretty much. They have, um, companies have solved this problem. Um, and it's kind of, this is one of the areas where we just, we don't have transparency. So it's hard to know really what is in these liquid mediums, but companies have engineered either things that are based on particular plants, um, or that are like synthetic in order to create liquid mediums that work. And they have been able to, um, significantly reduce the price of liquid medium which is is why you've seen this sort of like dramatic fall in the price of to produce cultured meat in the last like five years. I think this is also one of the sort of like interesting intersections with sort of vegans and cultured meat is that it really goes to show that like a vegan diet is all that we need because we're literally growing the meat uh, on a vegan diet. <laughs> it's like you are getting all of the like when people are like oh as a vegan you have to supplement it's like yeah because we are literally going to be supplementing your meat uh with all of these things before you eat it yeah absolutely the whole myth that b12 is just in meat <laughs> not that we inject chickens with it before people eat it <laughs> yep yeah so and that was always going to be like the easiest one to solve also because it's more than just a fake meat issue uh, it's also like there's a lot of cell culture that happens for other reasons and finding cheaper than $1,000 per four cups growth medium was something that a lot of people have been working on. Yeah, I can imagine like a just a research lab would probably want, <laughs> want that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would be great. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> but what you were talking about also highlights one of the other issues with this, uh, which I guess I'll bring up now, which is when I was trying to do research on this topic... Um, there is basically no peer-reviewed open source research on cultured, like cell-cultured meat. Um, this is all being kept very tightly under wraps because of intellectual property issues and all of that. Uh, and so there's very little transparency in the industry about any parts of their processes and any of the claims that they are making. It's very difficult to verify as just like an independent citizen what's going on. Maybe if you're like a donor or a sponsor or something, you might get more access to information, but normal people don't. And that's one of, one of the things that as a, someone trained in science, I am deeply skeptical of, is that there are a lot of companies making a lot of claims and meh, <laughs> very little like accountability. That was one of the complaints in um, this book by Chase Purdy was, uh, there is a literal association of scientists that study meat, and probably it would be nice to give them <laughs> some data so that they can go out and do research. Um, but because this is such a race where there are like just sort of a dozen companies that are all vying to get to the market and beat each other out, that they're they're all hanging on to these secrets really closely, and it's to the possibly to the detriment of uh, cultured meat in the future, because overcoming human trust issues is going to be crucial to getting people to actually buy this stuff in the stores. Yeah. And even just that, like, one of the major problems with the modern meat industry is that it is basically an oligopoly run by, like, three companies out of Brazil and Saudi Arabia. 
And that's where almost all of our meat comes from is these gigantic international conglomerates. And so when you have like all of these companies that are trying to be the first ones to market to dominate that in the cell cultured meat market, it's like that's not going to create good outcomes for average people either. Um, that is going to create, once again, just like more big monopolies, more big food companies that are going to do what big companies do and mess things up. And yeah, and if you look at the opposition to cultured meat, like individual ranchers and like meat producers are vehemently opposed to cultured meat, or at least in some cases have provided organized opposition. But the big like meat conglomerates themselves, like Tyson, are actually investing in these cell cultured meat companies as well. So Yeah, they want to own them. Yeah, they <laughs> which I I suppose like is a double sided issue, right? Because on one hand, we'll talk about the environmental benefits of cultured meat. And it's good that rather than being an organized opposition to this, you have some people buying buying in. But also like Tyson is evil. <laughs> oh, yeah. JBS is deeply evil. Yeah. So uh, it's not great. Okay, let's go to the last ingredient for cultured meat. So that is the bioreactor, which is basically just a big container that in very broad terms, functions sort of like a mechanical cow. It's like the thing that the cells live in. So these can be really small in like a lab setting for research. They can be super, super small. But for companies that are looking to actually sell cultured meat, they can be quite large. Uh, for example, Future Meat Technologies, which is, I think, an Israeli firm, they can theoretically grow the equivalent of 1,500 chickens in a few weeks in their bioreactor. So, <laughs> Super weird. Yeah, and this, this also <laughs> goes back to when I was talking at the start of like you have two sort of paths that you can go down, um, either the sort of like genuine meat feel or the pink slime root. Uh, and the pink slime root is much easier because you can just grow your pink slime in a big vat. They look just like a brewery like that. If you've ever been to like a craft brewery and you see the big metal silos in there, that's what a bioreactor is. And like you said, it functions just like a cow. Uh, it keeps it safe from outside insults uh, and it sort of adds in new nutrients and takes out waste. It is very much just like a mechanical cow. But if you want to go down the route of creating stuff that has actual texture, you can't just grow it in a vat because you need to grow it in a way that it will preserve that sort of like tissue plane like it has to grow as a sheet rather than as a big like lump in a vat <laughs> yeah the pink slime stuff is really gross so weird. <laughs> <laughs> not any grosser than like pink slime made from flesh but still super weird but yeah so the bioreactors for that also become much more complicated because you have to grow it in more of like a pizza oven style of growth vat where it's constantly sort of like rotating on a conveyor belt so that it's growing as a sheet, and then you can harvest them off. So that's one of the challenges as well of growing sort of like a more genuine cell-cultured meat, is just that it will require much greater innovation and specialization in your bioreactors, versus the pink slime that people are racing, mostly racing towards, which, yeah, you can just grow in a vat. One of the things that I found was interesting about the, um, the vat-grown meat <laughs> uh, is... <laughs> So they've, they've had this technical technological issue that they've had to deal with when they're designing these bioreactors. 
But cells like to grow in clumps, which makes sense uh, because organisms are, you know, if cells just grew everywhere, <laughs> like we wouldn't have people. That's a problem if you're trying to create this vat where you also need to get the cells to all access um, the liquid medium and also oxygen. So they have to like design these vats so that they're stirring enough to give the cells access to um, the medium and the oxygen, but not so much that they're damaging it. And as you grow the bioreactors, like the force is hard, is, um, that you need is larger. So it gets more challenging to scale up. I also think the image of like, so the way they, they get rid of um, when they need to harvest the, the meat at the end of the process. Oh, that would be so gross. Yeah, they spin it until all of the meat splatters against the walls. <laughs> they kind of just scrape it up. <laughs> I just find that interesting because it's such a sort of like high-tech um, issue that we're talking about, but just like scraping pink slime off the walls feels so low-tech. Yeah, yeah, a lot of cell culture is like that, that you're doing something that you're like, man, this is like a really advanced scientific thing that we're doing. And it's like, yeah, scraping pink slime off walls. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about the race to bring cultured meat to the market and a little bit about the history of cell culturing. Cell culturing has a long scientific history, um, more than a century long, but there's only been like really about a decade since we've been able to, maybe closer to two decades since we've been able to culture meat in a way that humans could consume. So in 1885, there was a zoologist named Wilhelm Rue who was able to extract tissue from a live chicken embryo, and he was able to keep it alive in a saline solution for a couple of days. And at the time, that was a really big breakthrough, but obviously <laughs> the technology has advanced since then. And throughout the 20th century, the ability to sell culture increased. By 1912, there was a surgeon named Alexis Carell who was able to keep a piece of an embryonic chicken heart alive for 34 years, starting in 1912. So, you know, like this technology isn't, it is new, but it has foundations that have been sort of progressing over a century. And in particular, in the 1970s, researchers started to be able to grow muscle fibers in vitro. That sort of sped up the process of cell-cultured meat, which led to the first patents that were approved in 1999. So really, if you think about like when it's been possible to culture meat, I like to think about like 1999 or 2000 as sort of the demarcation that we had patents for it by then and the race was sort of on after that point. In 2002, there was a scientist named Morris Benjaminson and he cultured the muscle, muscle tissue of a goldfish in a Petri dish. Uh, that project was funded by NASA because at the time they were interested in food alternative to sustain astronauts on long space journeys. So I think they were thinking Star Trek a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but they realized it cost $62,000 to produce a goldfish and were like, mm, maybe not yet. <laughs> so at the time, Benjaminson, he cook, he did cook the goldfish and he said that it looked and smelled just like a fish fillet or like the, the tissue of the goldfish that he produced. But because the product hadn't been approved, he decided not to eat it. So <laughs> 
So that leads me to the first um, people who we know ate cultured meat, um, and they were basically attendees at an art exhibit. So there was this Australian artist named Oren Katz who created cultured frog meat in 2003, and he served the frog meat to six guests, and it was part of an exhibit drawing attention to the hypocrisy that's required in loving and respecting animals, but also eating them. So frog, first cultured meat ever eaten by humans. <laughs> Weird. I also like that because that's one of the the challenging themes with cell cultured meat is the way that it changes our relationship to animals without materially changing the fact that we exploit them. No, you're totally right. But yeah, the last two decades have been, there's been a lot going on. And especially since um, about 2012, 2013, uh, there's been a lot of movement in cultured meat. So the first uh, cell-cultured hamburger was presented in 2013 by a scientist named Mark Post, who's also the founder of Mosa Meat, I think, one of the major meat com cultured meat that's companies that's coming up. Um, and he presented it in the hamburger in London. The burger was made from cultured beef muscle tissue, and it cost over $300,000 to make. So... So yeah, since 2015, there's been more than $100 million invested in cell-cultured meat. And uh, that's been by a combination of venture capitalists. So there's like people that make big bets on um, startups, basically. Um, there's also been a lot of investment from food giants like Tyson Foods. So you're seeing a combination of people, lots of interest in cultured meat. And the cost of making cultured meat has dropped from... $1.2 million per pound to $50 per pound today. So <laughs> that's pretty substantial. There, Yeah, there are um, a bunch of companies that are in the sort of race to get cultured meat to the market. One of them won recently, as we mentioned. So it's a company called Eat Just. It's interesting because the other companies on, on this sort in this sort of race are startups that do basically just cultured meat. And Eat Just, in a sense, has an advantage because it started as a company that produced plant-based condiments. So its first foray into the industry was plant-based mayonnaise. It got into a fight with Unilever about it. <laughs> <laughs> so it has like a longer history and already is a functioning food company. So that gave them a huge advantage in the race to... Um, get to the market. Although I will say being sort of the first one to the market isn't necessarily an indication that they're going to win market share over time. Um, they seem to specialize more in the pink slime form of meat, whereas there are some other companies that I think are trying to produce more high quality cultured meat. And so ultimately they may have better staying power. Who knows? But essentially, if you're looking at like who the companies are that create cultured meat, there are four that are basically based in Silicon Valley. And I think you can think of most of them kind of in the Silicon Valley spirit and attitude. Definitely Eat Just is like a vegan version of the show Silicon Valley from all I've been able to read. Wonderful. Yeah, they've had a bunch of issues with like um, employee turnover and things like that. Uh, then there are three companies that are based out of Israel. And the difference with um, the Israeli companies tends to be that they're more focused on the technology and invention. 
like Aleph Farms is one of them, and they're they're really focused on high quality, um, sort of a slower play towards the market. And then there are two companies, one's based out of the Netherlands and the other is based out of Japan. So those were like all of the ones that are sort of like in the game to be the first ones to produce cultured meat. Uh, some of them, including one of the Israeli firms, I can't remember which one, uh, they're focusing less on directly selling to consumers and more on sort of like selling the technology to other food companies. So if you see like Tyson Foods getting into cultured meat in the future, that could be because one of these startups starts selling the technology to others. That could happen too. So for, for most of the time, a cultured meat had to overcome scientific barriers in order to get to the market. But since about 2017 or 2018, most of the, like, the big companies that were in the race had something that was ready to sell. And the interesting thing is that now the regulatory barriers have become sort of like the thing that's preventing them from getting to the market. The, uh, so I mentioned at the beginning of the show that the first cultured meat that was sold was sold in December 2020. That's actually only kind of true. And that's because in December 2018, there was a cell cultured meat product that Eat Just, so the company that made the mayonnaise, also, the company that sold the chicken bites in Singapore recently. Uh, so they were in the Netherlands in 2018 to try to sell a cultured meat product right before new EU laws came into place. The idea was, if we can sell this, there's some ambiguity as to whether like cultured meat fits into like how they fit into the laws right now. But there's this new law coming into place that'll make it harder for us. So let's try to sell it under the wire. And the food regulator in the Netherlands was like, nah, brah. <laughs> and uh, they intervened in the sale. So although there was a transaction that was completed, it was then sort of, there was a take back on it because the government, depending on how you view it, got in the way unfairly or like preserved safety in food by upholding the that law. That is some classic Silicon Valley bullshit. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> That actually, there's another funny anecdote when I was looking into some stuff is that one of the Israeli companies, Future Meats, advertises very prominently on all of their publications that their cell cultured meat is free of genetically modified organisms. <laughs> and like, Ow. the first time that I saw this, I was like, who, who are you trying to convince here? Like, who is going to look at this and say, it doesn't have GMO in it, but it's grown in a vat. Like, those seem to be mutually inclusive categories of, like, food superstition. But then, as I was thinking about it, it's exactly the problem that, you're, that we're just talking about, which is regulatory. Um, that if you're trying to get into the European Union market, where there are very strict rules around genetically modified organisms then having something that you can label as genetically modified free or like not genetically modified helps you from a regulatory perspective. Even though like I strongly doubt that there is anyone who is like, I want my lab grown meat to not be genetically modified. Yeah, that is really, um, that's got to be a Venn diagram that's just a circle, I would imagine. It is really interesting though, like I didn't include this in my notes because I didn't want to be that person that goes down a regulatory rabbit hole. But in the United States, there's been like a whole conflict between the FDA and the U.S. Department of Agriculture over like who gets to regulate cell cultured meat. Because the FDA, they know everything about cell culturing and 
the Department of Agriculture knows nothing. And so like, they've resolved it now, but for a while, both regulatory bodies were trying to fight to be the one that regulates it. And eventually they decided that they both get to. So oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is actually hilarious. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I guess the next sort of step now that we've described what cell cultured meat is, is why. Uh, and there are basically three arguments that generally are proposed for cell cultured meat. And we'll, I think, have discussions around each of these because some of them are more contested than others, but there are dimensions to discuss in each. The first one's animal welfare. The second one is climate change. And the third one is human hunger. <laughs> I feel like that should be a bigger selling point. <laughs> what about immortality? It's true. <laughs> I don't think they've cracked that one yet, though. <laughs> yeah, there's actually... um. Um, another one that's not usually used as a justification, but I think is a really good point that like, because cell cultured meats are like free of pathogens, like it could solve antibacterial resistance, which I'm really worried about. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know, the major source of antibiotic resistance is uh, not humans not taking their doses. It is the massive quantities of antibiotics pumped into livestock. Yeah. Just the more you know. <laughs> Yep, because factory farms are really unhealthy and animals get diseases very easily in those tight quarters. Which brings us to animal welfare. So it's, it's no accident that the founders of cultured meat startups tend to be vegans. In almost all of the cases of the companies that have sell cultured meat, like there's, I think well, there's one case where the person isn't a vegan, he's just a a scientist that is an expert in cultured meat, but in most cases, they tend to be vegans. And on previous episodes of Pullback, we've talked about how bad animal agriculture is, so I don't really want to focus on that too much. But just as a quick reminder, the living conditions on factory farms are really horrific, um, and the vast majority of meat available on the market is from factory farms. So usually, if you're getting meat of some kind, it has some link to like animals not being able to sit down or move around or go outside and being in constant pain and stuff like that. And I think um, a lot of people are already sort of sympathetic to the argument that you should take cruelty out of food. And one way that's been posited is through cultured meat, although we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. I just want to highlight it with some facts first, though. So every year, an estimated 65 billion land animals are killed for human consumption. And if you think that's a lot, let me tell you about fish. <laughs> you texted me about this. It was so upsetting. I Like for three days, this has bothered me. More than a trillion fish are killed every year in fishing operations, and that doesn't even include aquaculture. And that's actually a low estimate. It's probably like two trillion. So... Fuck. That's so many fish. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is why the oceans are going to be empty by, like, 2050, by the way. Yeah, it's not great. So proponents of cell-cultured meat see all of that going on, and they're like, this is a clusterfuck. Can we have a future where it's not necessary to harm an animal in order to eat meat? Answer, Robbie? <laughs> yeah, so this one also goes back to the, the pink slime versus textured meat. Because only the pink slime is really, with current levels of scientific knowledge, assuming they don't have like super sci-fi secrets that they're keeping under wraps, the only option is pink slime. And so 
that doesn't necessarily solve that animal welfare problem either, because you're not going to get rid of meat consumption by replacing it with pink slime products. Um, that a lot of the drive for meat consumption is not just chicken nuggets. And so I think that's one of the things that the cell cultured meat industry doesn't really want to deal with because that's a really like big bummer for their potential market growth and also solving animal welfare. So that's sort of like the first element of animal welfare as it relates to this is that it's still going to be very limited. Another one that's interesting is just how much of the technology is based on plant-based foods. So it's like, I'll, I'll draw from future meats here again. Um, and the way that they're creating their sort of like chicken nuggets from their pink slime is to actually basically just dope plant-based chicken nuggets with chicken cells. And so as a result, like you're not, I'm not entirely sure that the cell cultured meat industry is even moving the sort of like plant-based alternative market forward because the two technologies are so deeply linked for creating anything other than like ground beef and ground chicken. And so I think that even as like something that vegans should be putting their energy into, it's like we might actually be better served by just sticking to the idea that we should be eating plants and trying to keep pushing plant-based like meat alternatives forward. That those might actually be a far more promising technology because like cell cultured meats don't really differentiate from them. And the plant-based like alternative meats industry has exploded so much in the last two years that I sometimes have to double check labels to make sure that I'm not eating actual meat when I'm eating an alternative. Yeah, like my roommate asked me to go buy him butter, like like dairy butter. Um, and I, on, I earnestly tried to do it. And then I accidentally bought vegan butter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can get some pretty good like vegan butter. I, I have had people not be able to tell the difference when I'm like serving them. Yeah, this is like a whole, um, a whole debate for the vegans that have decided to start cultured meat companies or that invest in them or various things like that. They seem to have made a calculation I was like, I want to get as much animal cruelty out of the system as possible, even if I, we do have to sort of do biopsies or um, occasionally extract tissue from dead animals. It's still a lot fewer. And they seem to have made a calculation that like providing genuine meat, like animal meat that is as cruelty free as possible is going to be easier than changing the culture so that plant based um diets are more popular. Well, I think they're going to have to hurry up and get to market like yesterday because the plant-based alternatives that are available now are so good and they're only going to be improving. So it's like by the time this technology hits the market, nobody's going to want it because it's like, well, I can get a perfectly good plant-based burger that honestly has the same texture as a regular burger. So why would I want the fake meat one? But I think it's a whole mindset, which is interesting because there's a whole mindset around lab-grown meat that they'll have to overcome anyway. But like eating animal-based protein is so central like culturally to the way that a lot of people have lived and grown up. And I guess I guess that's my like, is that a really sad view of human nature if you're assuming that we can't push past that and become more in favor of plant-based meat when all the evidence says that a plant-based diet is good for you and is the only thing that will prevent climate change. Well, even if that's true, though, 
as Robbie has said a few times now, the technology is such that we can only really get chicken nugget style meat. So it's not even like this is a good alternative for the people who who can't get past that mindset because they're going to like they're going to want that marbled steak, which is just something the technology can't provide. Yeah, at least not at scale. It may actually be possible to the more difficult meats if they're if they're really expensive. So <laughs> maybe for rich people on their COVID yachts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's also that like you can create those sort of like tissue meats. It's just that you can't do it in a way that doesn't require some kind of like population of animals to constantly be harvested for their stem cells. But this kind of like points to one of the big divides in the vegan community between sort of like the Peter Singer style utilitarian vegans versus this more of sort of deontological vegans. Duty-based for people who aren't philosophy majors. (laughs) People who view veganism as like a moral imperative rather than as a utilitarian calculus to reduce suffering. And so if you are a utilitarian vegan, I think it it would be much easier to make that compromise to say that it's like if we have a thousand cattle that we're constantly harvesting for stem cells, that's better than 65 billion land animals dying every year. Like the net reduction in animal suffering is sufficient to justify that technology. If you are more like a moral vegan, then you still can't look at cell cultured meat that's grown that way and say, this is okay. It also kind of reveals an even more, I think, underlying contention between those two groups of vegans and cell cultured meat is that like a utilitarian vegan can still look at that and say, no animal is feeling pain because of this meat, and therefore it is fine. Versus sort of my contention that I've come to now with cell cultured meat is that it doesn't actually change our relationship to animals. Like human beings still fundamentally dominate the animal life process through cell cultured meat. And they do it actually in like a potentially even more extreme way than factory farming. That it's like we have literally turned animals into nothing more than like flesh vats for human consumption. And that is our relationship to animals going forward. Like that doesn't create a healthy relationship between human beings and animals. It literally just turns them into like the most reductive possible form of of life um, that we will then completely control and dominate. And that is how we feel towards other species that they are not even like sentient beings that are individuals in our mind anymore, even if we're oppressing them. It's literally, they are lumps of flesh for our consumption. So I think I broadly agree with you on that, Robbie, but just to sort of push back a little bit, you can envision a world, I think, where let's say cell cultured meat takes off, but you still do occasionally need to extract cells from animals. Because there'd be so much less land needed because you'd only need a few thousand cows rather than like billions, you could have them in much better conditions. So like it's not, you're right that it's not changing the fundamental relationship, but it is like you're going from a situation where we're basically doing that with animals anyway. We're just treating them as flesh. But in the meantime, they have an agonizing existence where they never see the sun And under this conception, you could provide them with like a relatively good life. Yeah. And I mean, that is the difference, though, between the sort of like more utilitarian veganism versus a deontological veganism. 
because we're going to make this episode about vegans, whether we like it or not. <laughs> well, we invited you, so. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think that's also interesting for sort of like our relationship towards science and the fact that this is like a very market-based solution and all of that is wrapped up in it as well. It's like, do we want to pursue something, even though it has other harms and other problems because it reduces animal suffering and is more sustainable? Or do we want to look at this and say, cell-cultured meat is just another Silicon Valley tech bro carnist solution to the problem? And it you know, will not actually produce a workable solution because it's still just wrong on so many levels. And doesn't fix our relationships either with the animals that we turn into food or with our food itself or with our economic system, that it is very much just like a status quo technological solution to problems that are not just technology based. And I think that's an interesting dimension that doesn't get talked about enough because so much of it is like this Silicon Valley technological like race. And it's very exciting to watch. But it has its own problems and its own like weirdness. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a good bridge to to move to the second justification, which is like the environment more broadly, or it's often climate change specifically is the lens that's talked about. We'll talk about how this is kind of um, cultured meat is problematic from an environmental perspective. But taking animals out of the equation in meat production or at least making them a smaller factor, has an, it has immense potential for climate change. So animal agriculture right now is responsible for an estimated 14% of greenhouse gases, and that's rising every year because meat consumption is rising. We can also talk about like overfishing and things like that. So it's not just climate change, um, but overfishing and you know pollution from animal agriculture is hugely problematic. But just to, to give you some context, a single cow that is about uh, 1,200 pounds produces about 100 kilograms of methane, which is roughly equivalent to a car burning 230 gallons of gasoline. Uh, I don't know what that is in liters, unfortunately. Forgot to look that up. A large number. <laughs> a large number, yeah. So it's a significant greenhouse gas, and a lot of people who promote cell-cultured meat or who promote a plant-based diet point to the fact that animal agriculture is inherently wasteful. So it takes about six pounds of animal feed to produce one pound of beef. If you're looking at the, the same sort of ratio, it's 3.5 pounds of feed for one pound of pork and two pounds for a single pound of chicken. So you're like going anywhere from like double the amount of animal feed in, to like six times the amount in order to produce the same volume of animal protein versus plant food. And like, they're not like perfectly nutritionally equivalent, but no matter how you slice it, like the fact is, if you're producing animal, th animal meat through traditional agriculture, like you're growing a bunch of plants and you're using land and resources and energy to do that. And then you're, you're feeding it to animals. So there's sort of like a, a really inefficient middleman for us getting the, the nutrients that we need. Which I think a lot of people would say is justification just to eat a plant-based diet to cut out that middleman entirely and sort of not have to deal with animal products at all. But one argument is that if you're sort of like cell culturing it, you can make it more efficient to produce. And speculative data suggests that um, 
cultured meat could be a real sort of revolution in this regard. Uh, this is data from a 2011 study by um, a University of Oxford researcher named Hannah Tuomisto. She estimates that cultured meat could require 45% less energy, produce 96% less greenhouse gas, and use 99% less land and 96% less water than current agricultural operations for meat. Now, that study is a little bit too optimistic because it assumes that companies are using the most environmentally friendly medium available, and we don't actually know what medium they're using. But in any case, there's like pretty a pretty strong consensus that there will be substantial environmental benefits from cultured agriculture over conventional animal farming. And before I turn this over to discussion, I just want to um, bring in a little bit of science fiction, because I think it sort of underscores the point. I don't know if either of you have read uh, The Neuromancer by William Gibson. I have, but I don't like his, I don't like his like writing style. So I only read half of it. And then I read the ending on Wikipedia. It's fair. You don't really need to know anything about the novel for this, but um, it's a very famous sci-fi novel. And uh, there's a cyborg character that takes um, a conventionally grown steak from someone's plate and says, give me that. You know what this costs. They've got to raise a whole animal for years and then they kill it. This isn't vat stuff. So <laughs> really like underscoring how like how many more resources it takes to produce conventionally grown animal meat to raise an animal and slaughter it takes a lot more resources than growing pink stuff in a vat. Before we get like away from at what you were just saying, I just want to go completely off topic and say that I really liked your description of the cow as the middleman. I kept picturing like a cow in a trench coat, like, <laughs> <laughs> like an inefficient middleman trying to sell you some like bad like car insurance or something. Stupid cows in their markups. <laughs> yeah, like I think that the the sustainability argument is the strongest. Um, that cell cultured meat has going for it, except that like plant-based diets are also very sustainable. Like it's one of the ones that I think is very strong, but also not at all exclusive. And like, it's just true um, that it will be <laughs> way less energy and greenhouse gas intensive because yeah, the cell culture in a vat doesn't use ruminant digestion. So it doesn't produce methane. For all that we don't usually think of animals as having like complex inner lives and brains and sentience, uh, most of the energy that you're feeding to cows goes to, you know, keeping their brain running and, you know, just like humans. And so, yeah, if you don't have any of those other organs and other body processes that are going on taking up resources, then yeah, you get a much better conversion of your plant biomass into cell cultured meat biomass. Um, but of course, you can always just eat the plant biomass. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And like, this is my same issue with the hunger argument, which I also think is a good argument. Um, and it's like the main justification behind early cell culture technology. I'll just I'm just going to go ahead and summarize it now, because I think we can talk about it in the context of sustainability, too. So... <sighs> There's a guy named Willem van Eelen, and he's sort of known, I mean, he's dead now, he died in 2015, but he's sort of known as the godfather of cultured meat. And he was this guy who, um, this Dutch guy who was a prisoner of war in Japan during the Second World War, and his experience during that um, 
was he himself uh, experienced starvation and he also saw what it did to the people around him. So he spent the rest of his life basically campaigning to try to solve hunger. And most of that was focused on cell cultured meat because he saw the potential of growing meat in a lab as a way to address world hunger, uh, which is interesting. And at the time, nutritionally, um, like now we know that you can get a perfectly fine diet from plants and it actually is probably more healthy for you. But, you know, when he's growing up in the mid 40s, there's like this whole idea that you you need animal based protein in order to be healthy. So it's understandable how he gets to this point. But human hunger is going to be it already is a huge problem. And uh, it's going to be even more so in the future as we look towards having 10 billion people in the world. Um, and we already have sort of like We've talked about this before on the podcast, but some huge amount of land is already devoted towards agriculture. And even more of that in the future is going to have to be devoted, not only because you're, we're going to have to produce up to 70% more food, but also because climate change is going to make uh, agricultural yields are likely to go down in a lot of places. Some areas won't be able to grow food at all. Some areas it's going to be more unpredictable. So trying to to solve that issue is a real problem, and animal agriculture is a huge barrier. But again, on this issue, like, just plants is another solution. So I don't know. Yeah, I, this this is so deeply tied to sort of my skepticism towards self-cultured meat, because when I was, you know, a lot younger, I thought it was so cool. Like, it's very neat. It's such a cool, like, technology, and you're like, oh, man, this, it has so much potential. But then you start to realize that like climate change is not a technological problem at this point. It is entirely a social organization problem. Hunger has never been a like biological constraint of the planet. It has always been a human constraint of our mechanisms of distribution and the like fundamental injustices that we allow to happen in the world. Like Famine is extremely rarely actually due to a lack of available food. Uh, it is almost entirely because of the unequal distribution of it. Uh, I think we'd be remiss not to like talk about the Indian farmer strikes that are happening right now. That like hunger in India will increase under Modi's laws because it will allow companies to stockpile necessary food items to wait for higher prices, even if people are starving. It is stuff like that that results in hunger, not, you know, our inability to grow meat in a lab. And so I've kind of like soured on cell cultured meat as anything more than like a weird Silicon Valley pop obsession, simply because I think that there are much better solutions to all of the problems that it proposes, and especially because of the limited ways that it's able to solve them. Like unless we can actually replace steaks... Um, it's going to be competing against plant-based products that are almost indistinguishable because as Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers demonstrated, it's actually quite doable to replicate the sort of like flavor and texture of meat with only plants. And it might honestly be a lower barrier for people to like stomach that is to say that it's like this tastes just the same, but like it's just made out of plants they mush together, as opposed to this thing that also tastes the same, but was grown in a vat? Like, uh, it, like the grossness of it and the like alienness and uncanniness of it are similar problems that the plant-based market faces. 
And it's not as though like people are going to be like, oh, it's just meat grown in a lab. Like it's meat grown in a lab. Um, these are <laughs> like, it's just, it's going to be just as weird. Um, it doesn't like provide a silver bullet that allows us to like get people over their aversion to eating plants. It's such a frustrating problem because there's no reason for it to be a problem. A, we could just like reform our political systems so that food distribution is fairer. But B, like if we could just get people over the like, frankly, like the toxic masculinity around like soy boys and whatnot, just eat plants and it's fine. But there seems to be this assumption that we won't be able to do that. And I have to say, I'm not sure that we will be able to do that. There's been nothing that's happened in the last year that's made me feel like humanity is doing well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know, maybe the like cartoonishly, yeah. like maybe this like high tech solution that is going to be palatable, if it can be palatable to people, I don't even know. Maybe it's the only way forward. As I've been listening, Kristen, I have been reminded of the episode that we did on eating insects a lot, which is that like, mostly I just keep thinking like, yeah, this isn't a great solution, but if people can stomach it, it's a better solution than the current problems that we're experiencing with animal agriculture. So if people are not going to switch plant to plant-based and they're going to insist on, they, they want to get their protein from, from meat or animals, then I mean, <laughs> it, it, the current the current system is so bad that if we can get people off of it to, to anything else, basically, then I'm kind of on board with it. So if if this is a solution that goes hand in hand with people eating more plant based stuff, if people start eating more insects, like then like, yeah, of course, I would rather everybody just eat plant based. But I just am so horrified by the agriculture industry as it is that I'm kind of willing to accept any solutions, especially if there's a few different options, because then we're more likely to catch in that net people who maybe wouldn't eat insects or wouldn't eat plant-based, but would eat lab-grown for whatever reason. I like the the theoretical concept of um, plant-based bycatch that you just evoked there. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, Yeah. And I mean, I think it's relevant to bring up toxic masculinity, because one of the things that I think doesn't get talked about enough is that it's like, for some people, the suffering is the point that one of the reasons why meat is taken up is literally because it is all about that demonstration of dominance. Well, then let those people go hunt their own food and we can regulate that too. Yeah. I mean, that would also be great. Or just putting this out there, but like, annual purges for those people <laughs> they can go out and fight each other as long as they're only killing each other i don't want to have yeah, to kill exactly. them <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't want to participate in a purge i wouldn't make it oh uh, yeah we started talking about cell cultured meat we ended talking about the purge <laughs> it, it is quite despairing but it's also it, it's like i mentioned when i was talking about the sort of utilitarian versus deontological vegans is that it's like at a certain point, we do have to recognize that the problem isn't the technologies that we have. The problem that we have is our social organization. And one of the reasons why cell-cultured meat is both like 
people propose it and then also people like me are kind of not super stoked about it is because it doesn't have to challenge any of those power dynamics, which then demands the question that if we can, with like relatively high degrees of confidence, say that our problems are social, our problems are political, and this technological solution comes along that is like, I will solve none of those. But here's a fancy technology. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, so that we can acknowledge that this is purely a band-aid, that we're not even con- or we're not even confident is going to work because all of the same social factors that block plant-based foods or make animal agriculture awful are still present. That's true, but I also feel like that's asking a lot of any new technology to challenge our social structures. <laughs> and if we just accept it for what it is, then I I don't know, it seems pretty harmless to me and better than the current agricultural situation. Yeah. I, I and I think the solution that I have there is that it's like we just shouldn't be pinning our hopes on technology to change anything. We should just be looking technology as like this is cool. Like I think this would be neat. Um, but recognizing that when they go to like corporate investment boards and try and like drum up IPOs um, to recognize that most of their claims about being like a silver bullet to solve climate change and like stop the animal agriculture industry are largely bullshit. I think I think one of the things that is interesting that we haven't talked about with cultured meat yet is this notion that it's like potentially the beginning of a huge technological revolution. We talked about that a little bit when we talked about like the quest for immortality. But there's some suggestions um, in the book Billion Dollar Burger that like you could fundamentally have a rethink of like what it is to eat. And I just kept thinking, I don't know if you guys know anything about the history of milk chocolate. (laughs) Should I? We just did an episode about it. (laughs) No, it's... Anyway, it just came to my head. I was thinking about it the whole time I was reading this book. So chocolate, as people will find out on the podcast before this one episode is released, it has sort of like a longer history, but we only recently sort of started eating it in the way that we think about it. And one of the things we didn't talk about on that episode, but that I think is really interesting, is like a few companies figured out how to put, how to make milk chocolate, basically, like how to create a product that was smooth and creamy and in like the chocolate bar form that you recognize today. And like it fundamentally changed our experience of sweets and things like that. Like we didn't have anything akin to a chocolate bar before somebody thought to put like evaporated milk powder into this product. And suddenly like that's like now most of the chocolate I eat is in bar form. I think that's probably the case for most people. Um, And I've been thinking about like cell cultured meat might really like take off as a new technology where our food is changed in a way that we've like not conceptualized at all, right? Like you could have meats that we've never even envisioned or like food combinations that we've not tried before. I I think that is interesting. Well, and I mean, don't forget about the rich people who are for sure going to eat human flesh. Yeah, there's a, so there's a, a cookbook I tried to to link to you guys, um, but I it wasn't the right one. I haven't been able to find it online. But there's um, a cell cultured meat cookbook that someone created as like satire, and it includes like human combinations. So like that's already been thought of. Probably probably Elon Musk's already eating it. Don't sue us, Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Bezos. 
like, yes, no, this is probably not going to be the, a perfect solution or even a solution to all of the current problems that we're experiencing. But because it's such a big deal and it's going to be such a big deal as it rolls out, we're having conversations like this. And I think a lot of people who maybe wouldn't be thinking about changing their diets will suddenly be faced with this question, which might then normalize the idea that our current system for animal agriculture is fucked. And the fact that people will be thinking about it more might might bring on more change. Like even, even though this isn't a solution, it it normalizes the conversation, just like how in the last few years, you know, uh, plant-based milks have just blown up and oat milk is is exploding. And it's because so many more people are talking about it now. Yeah, that is true. Look at you being optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I'm just feeling it today, you guys. <laughs> I'm just going to like 100% flip that, uh, that optimism for a second here. Um, because when Kristen was talking about this sort of like new technological revolution that was going to like change how we interact with food. I was having like flashbacks to reading living in the end times by Slavoj Žižek where (laughs) I think the first time we've ever brought up Žižek on the show, but uh, it's, it's too, it, it took us too long. (laughs) Yeah. Because like when we were talking and it just like, it came to a head for me the moment that we started talking about the fact that like, yes, absolutely. People will culture human cells um, so that rich people can live, like actually eat humans. Because like that is one of the other deep concerns that I have with cell-cultured meat as a technology is that it is very much like it has the potential to just like dramatically change how we view like biological entities. Um, that it's not just animals that we are going to be reducing to flesh in vats, but that it really like pushes us a step towards viewing humans as flesh vats. And like in many of the same ways. Great band name, by the way, Flesh Bats. It <laughs> would be a pretty solid uh, vegan punk band, uh, which is also something that I discovered recently. There's a whole genre of music, uh, straight edge vegan punk, which is hilarious. But like going back to, to that point that it's like, again, one of the sort of like common moral arguments for veganism is that in many ways, the domination that we do onto animals becomes reflected in human societies is that it's like, if we are going to turn animals into vats of flesh, um, what are going to be the consequences for how that changes our relationship with other human beings? And how is the sort of these changes to our diet, which have oftentimes been related to changes in like very oppressive consequences, like sugar was something that dramatically changed the diet of Europeans um, but it didn't necessarily result in good things. No. It was actually quite <laughs> bad for a lot of people. Um, and so it's like, I worry that cell-cultured meat will do many of the same things because that's kind of like this line of techno-skepticism that Zizek and also Arendt um, have talked about is that it's like when we change the sort of like boundaries of reality and what things are and how they are constituted as real when we no longer like view animals as like individual beings that we, you know, slaughter, um, but start to view them as purely like biological growth vats. Yeah, that becomes quite dangerous. I'm personally really looking forward to eating a chicken nugget that is actually half boar and half octopus. I don't know. I I don't actually know if I'm going to try like even like vegan lab grown meats. 
Because there is also the question that it's like a chicken did still suffer for that chicken nugget. It's just one chicken suffered for a billion nuggets. And it just becomes like a very strange trolley problem. Like how many billions of chicken nuggets am I am I willing to to say is no longer an animal that suffered? <laughs> I'm like, hmm. Cool. Well, is that our episode, Christian? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Woof. <laughs> and like that feels like a conclusion. And it's just like, what is the trolley problem of that chicken nugget? Do you pull the lever and stick your fork <laughs> into the lab-grown vat meat? Or do you not? I mean, I feel like an ambiguous end for an ambiguous technology <laughs> is fine for this episode. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I mean, like in terms of a concrete takeaway that your listeners can can have from this episode, um, as in every episode where I am a guest, uh, it is going to be go vegan. <laughs> that is the concrete thing you can do. <laughs> One time you told us to join a community for the climate <laughs> and then the pandemic started. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Actually, that reminds, sorry, that reminds me of a thing I was reading in this book. Um, so they're trying to figure out what the conditions are that grow cells well. And there's this whole debate about like whether movement is fundamental to the process. And the whole time I just kept thinking like how little I've moved in the last month because of lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm my own experiment into this. You don't need it to survive. <laughs> yeah, that is actually interesting that it's like, do muscle cells need to contract and tear and scar to create the sort of like texture that we think of when we think of flesh. Huh. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that because that would be extremely difficult to replicate in a in a vat. I don't know. You could just, you know, ex exercise it. Just squish it and then unsquish <laughs> it. I, I don't know, actually. Yeah. No, because like you don't have that, that scarring process and damage process is mediated by so many other different cell types that you wouldn't want to be growing in the vat. That's a good point. Yeah, like you would need like an immune system in the vat. You would need an inflammatory response in the vat. Yep. And, and I don't <laughs> think you can do that. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. So where do you land, Kristen? Are you going to try lab-grown meat when it makes it to Canada? No, I don't understand the point. <laughs> <laughs> Tofu's great. <laughs> it really is. I might try it for curiosity's sake, but I don't see myself adding it to my diet. <laughs> Oh, man. This is another thing I'm worried about, because, like, I'm worried that now, we, now that we have lab-grown meat, and I still don't have any fucking vegan chicky nugs <laughs> in the fast food store. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got, like, a bunch of Gardein in the freezer right now, and I think uh, that's going to be what I cook up for dinner, is to have some uh, some Gardein chicken nuggets with my uh, quinoa tacos. Ooh. Yeah, but like I'm, I'm pissed because I'm betting what's going to happen is McDonald's is just going to go straight to lab-grown meat, and they're never going to give me my vegan chicken eggs. <laughs> 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 it's probably ultimately better for me, but uh, probably. <laughs> okay, well, that was our episode on <laughs> lab-grown meat. Thank you for joining us, Robbie. As usual, I'm sorry that we couldn't convert you. Uh, I don't, don't think that was ever on the, t I mean, I don't think Kristen and I are convinced either. So yeah. this was three skeptics to a podcast on a technology. They're not entirely sure they like. Yeah. I mean, if we, if any of us come across an expert who's like super gung ho about it, maybe we'll do another episode just to show the other side of it. But I feel like we've represented it pretty well here. If listeners have something that they want to 
jump in on with this conversation, you can get us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. We're always interested to hear what you guys think about this stuff, especially this one, which is really complex in the moral gray area-ness. And also like... It's just complex in all areas, Kyla. <laughs> yeah, it's just so complicated. Yeah, it's just so. like a black box of technology that like, I could be entirely wrong. I feel like I actually should have put that disclaimer at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> but like, uh, I, I am a recovering scientist. I do know a great deal about cell technology, but like, I haven't really stayed up to date since I left university like six years ago. And I could be wrong. We could have solved some of these problems that I identified, but I don't think so. And all of these companies don't publish any of their research and any of their findings and based on what they are producing it seems like you know we have not discovered the cure for mortality yet um but just as a disclaimer i am i am not like a phd cell biologist i am an msc biologist if we're wrong which we don't think we are hit us up on twitter and, and we'll catch you on the next episode thanks robbie yeah thanks for having me this was a pleasure as always